Hello and welcome to Life of the School, Episode 8. Hello and welcome to Life of the School. My name is Aaron Matthew and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. On this podcast, I interview life science teachers from around the country. And when I have these conversations with them, I like to ask them what led them into the classroom, what they're currently working on, and what they're looking forward to in the future. This week, I speak with David Form. David is a biology teacher from Neshoba Regional High School in Bolton, Massachusetts. He's taught several levels of biology, including AP biology and a variety of electives. David is credited with bringing many biotechnology resources to his school through implementation of the BioTeach grant. David has an expertise in bioinformatics and regularly presents at conferences and develops curriculum focusing on bioinformatics and evolution. These include at MABT conferences, several presentations as part of the Wabakia Project, at the Whitehead Institute in Cambridge, presenting for the International Society for Computational Biology, and developing curriculum over several years for the Harvard University Life Science Outreach Program. Welcome, David. Thank you. So, yeah, David, we, we've known each other for, gosh, we've known each other for many years now. I feel like it's got to be four or five years since we first met. And then we keep running into each other. <laughs> so I was thinking of this summer when I, I walked into that. I walked into that new, uh, for me, MIT uh, workshop, that summer workshop uh, in the uh, neuro department at MIT. And I walk in and I take a seat and turn to my left and who's sitting there but David Form. So <laughs> yeah. David is. David's always very uh, busy in the professional development community. So it's always great to see you. You're, you're a good, you're a friendly face I expect to see at a lot of the good conferences. So yeah. That's so um, I'm going to start with the first question I like to ask everybody, which is how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Well, um, I've always... I guess secretly wanted to be a teacher. I always um, saw myself at some point teaching at some level. And when I went to graduate school, uh, I had never done research as an undergraduate. I went to graduate school and it was like a synchronous swim um, situation where basically very little guidance. Here you are, here's the lab. And I thought that would change, you know, over the years as I got used to it. But I just had more and more of a desire to teach. So one year, I didn't get a grant that I needed. So I decided to try teaching. And from the first day, it was just totally different than before. I, I looked forward to going in the next day. I, I seemed to have felt um, knew where I was, and I knew that I, where I wanted to be, and I sort of had some vision of how to get there, and I found that really compelling. And so my first job was at a private school, and eventually I got into the public school systems. Yeah, so I'm curious about, like, what your lab experience was like. What kind of lab was that that you were, you were working on? So as a graduate student, I studied in a marine biology program, Yale University. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And when I got there, they put you in a lab, and it was sort of sink or swim. You're given, you know, a year and a half to find a project. They took classes, did some work in the lab, and 
I just, just got more and more interested in sort of the medical aspects of it. Still basic biology, but more medical aspects. And I did a postdoc on uh, angiogenesis, the growth of new blood vessels, very important in development, very important in cancer. And I researched the role of uh, changes in the extracellular matrix and that how those uh, might drive the process of angiogenesis. Yeah, so you were deep, you were deep in the weeds in research. Yeah, yeah, it was a different world. So, so you you were went there and you did your you were working on your postdoc, um, and then you had a grant fall through, and you you were like, oh my yeah. god, I got to scramble, uh, and I need to yeah. pay the bills. <laughs> so, yeah, you also knew it was, that was a good point to consider whether I wanted to continue in research or do teaching. Why was that a good time to sort of reconsider things? Um, as I said, I never, I didn't dislike research, but I wasn't enthusiastic about getting up every day and going in. I was still young. I was in my early 30s, and I figured this would be a good time to try teaching since I felt like that's something I would probably like to pursue. Yeah. Want to get more and more um, sort of stuck in what I was doing. Yeah. So this this is a nice transition because it it makes me think of like when I think of you, um, I think about bioinformatics. Like that's <laughs> to me that's your bread and butter. That's where you know when I'm teaching in the middle of the year and I'm looking forward to when we're getting into bioinformatics, I think, oh, what are, what can I steal from David Form? Um, so is, is the bioinformatics work an extension out of uh, some of that work that you were doing in the lab, because a lot of the lab work you were doing, I, I mean, I know when you entered the classroom, um, bioinformatics was not nearly as big back then. Is, is that something that came out of that research? It <laughs> yeah, it didn't it really exist. I didn't think it did. Um, so where did that sort of passion and interest come from about bioinformatics? Yeah, I took, I think it, it might have been 1995. Uh, I took a summer workshop. Um, given by Cold Spring Harbor on genomics. And I don't know if you went to any of those workshops, but they were just coming out with labs um, from Carolina. Um, so they taught electrophoresis. And um, so they, they had something new that year. And it was basically we um, amplified uh, a mitochondrial um, mm -hmm. segment, DNA segments. Uh, from all the teachers, and in the afternoon, we had a postdoc come in, and he was working in this new field that I didn't know anything at all about, uh, called bioinformatics, and we compared our DNA with that of Neanderthals, and we drew, um, we had the computer, you know, on the computer, and I thought that was really exciting, and I I always felt like, you know, I want, to, I want to grab the kids and have them feel like they're really doing research, but it's also research that they find relevant enough that they can get excited about. And so it was just like, this is great. And I spoke to the guy that was running the lab, and he agreed to send me sort of a preview of the lab to try in my classroom. And we tried it that year. And it was kind of funny. We um, 
collected DNA from all the students. I was in a vocational school. I was, mm. I was at Minuteman. Um, so I had the students all day. This was an honors class. And so we, we got DNA from all the students. We sent it out to Cold Spring Harbor to be sequenced. They sent us the sequences um, online. And um, I didn't know how to do any real bioinformatics. We, I had the students construct the phylogenetic trees by counting the number of differences because it was just mm -hmm. a short sequence of DNA that we had. And we made a tree, and one of the students, according to the tree, was a chimp. <laughs> and so we all thought that was pretty funny. And I realized I don't know what I'm doing, but there's something there. So I really just wanted to learn about what I'm doing. And I realized the potential in the, uh, for the classroom of, of things like this. And so I just made a lot of phone calls and, uh, eventually I, I, I had a few people that were in bioinformatics and I could call them and they would give me help. I, and it was basically just self-starting. I would read science news or look at Nova and I'd say, could I have the kids do something on that using bioinformatics that I would try it and then I call someone, what program could I use to do this? And I slowly got better at it, but that was it. So that was all while I was, uh, yeah, it, it, it is amazing because I, you know, I did have the good fortune a, a couple of years ago where um, I, and I mentioned this on a previous podcast when I was talking to, to Chris Brothers um, that that I me and you got to present together where we had to get together and put together some lessons or explain how to use bioinformatics in, you know, as a separate lesson to sort of support the Wabakia project. Like what are some sort of introductory kind of bioinformatics stuff that you could do? And I, I just remember sitting down with you and having to, like, rein you in because you have this, like, very, you know, I think of it almost like a lamp-like wonder about all of the questions that you can ask <laughs> using bioinformatics. Because um, I would say an idea often, it was almost like jazz. I would say something and you would riff on four different lab ideas that we could do using that idea you know, where we could look at this protein or we could look at that protein and, and you'd go down these interesting roads. And it was really, it was really entertaining. It, it was hard to get anything done. Um, <laughs> the two of us working together because I was coming up with ideas and then you were building off of those ideas. And I kept on feeling like, wait a minute, we're not really getting to building the lessons, but it was, it was really, it was really fun for me because it, it really showed me your passion for the bioinformatics uh, and sort of opened up my eyes to some of the possibilities and some of the different directions we can go with it. So, yeah, it was it was really, as I, I think anybody who ever has a chance to see you present or talk to you about bioinformatics will get like seven or eight lessons uh, right off the top um, about proteins to research. I, I should try to rein that in. I no, it was, it was great. It was uh, great. I don't know if you remember when I came to your room and you were showing me all of your work that your students had done and all the examples that they had done. Yeah. Um, it was great. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was also, you know, it's, it's also nice to get out of your classroom for me to go and see what you were doing with your kids. Cause it was, you know, you have an expertise in bioinformatics that nobody I work with has. Um, so nobody where I work, you know, a lot of people that I work with are doing exciting things, but it was such a, it was a different lens through which to look at biology. So it was, it was exciting for me to sort of see that open possibility. Um, I still, I still go and steal your lessons, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could use. Yeah, I, I think I'll definitely post. Um, I'll definitely post your Chilean blob up uh, in my show notes. Um, 
And uh, maybe I'll post the 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 rip off of your Chilean blob that I I I made um, based off of that. Uh, uh, what was it? The Acapulco Sea Monster, uh, which is my riff on that. But all all truth be told, it was very much inspired inspired and and based off of your original uh, Chilean blob, which is a great way to introduce Blast um, and open up bioinformatics to any level of kid. Um, it's a really nice opening lesson. So. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great one. So um, this sort of leads into another thing. So um, you dropped this summer, when, as I said, we were sitting next to each other, and we're, everyone's doing their bio. And I think I know David Form pretty well. I've, you know, we've presented at conferences together. We, you've been at my school. I've been at yours. Um, and I'm sitting next to you, and you dropped this line where you're like, I've de- developed a molecular gastronomy elective. And I'm sitting next to you going, and yeah. we had, I mean, we were so busy in that workshop. And I think if we had partnered up um, in our projects, I might have asked you a little bit more, but we partnered with different people. Uh, but I, I want you to tell me, yeah. what is this molecular gastronomy elective? Uh, tell me a bit more about this course that you've developed. Yeah, so this is this is an idea that I had spoken to other teachers about for, for I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, just, you know, um, can we combine um, biology and chemistry with cooking. And we do, you know, a little bit of that in the classroom. There's some labs you can get that have a relationship to cooking. And I thought it'd be great to have an elective where students are um, learning about the science behind cooking. So we do it like a science lab, but using things that would be um, involved in their cooking and they get a project and on it on the topic that we're doing that they choose a project a, a cooking project and they use the science to modify the original recipe so and it's pretty simple and the other thing i i bought a molecular gastronomy kit so around that time when i was researching you know doing the class and i and that was a, sort of a revelation, all of the things that are going on now using um, things like agar and uh, things like that to enhance different foods. And so that was very intriguing. So we used a lot of that as well. And most of it's pretty simple. But I was going to ask, I, so is that like one of those uh, like molecular gastronomy projects that you could buy from, you know, like a, a catalog company type thing? We, yeah, we, we use that for certain things. So um, it was basically centered around like proteins. So it was the first unit we did uh, was on um, protein structure and uh, coagulating proteins in, in the classroom and the lab. They uh, I brought in um, egg white and milk, so casein for the milk and um albumin for the egg white. And then the students tested um, different materials that you'd have in the kitchen to see if they would, and techniques to see if they would coagulate either of those proteins. So we, for acid, we use vinegar or lemon juice. Mm. Um, they heat it, different things like that, and they record um, whether it was coagulating and how long it took. Yeah. And, then, and we did an enzyme uh, as well. And then they went and made mm-hmm. cheese and so they were able to explain the whole cheese-making process. And then they used their, they made mozzarella cheese and then used their cheese um, with a homemade pizza. Wow. And then they had to write about, um, they tried out the different cheeses and write about 
what was going on and how they might improve it. So it was all basically starting with, we did uh, carbohydrates and um, carbohydrates as fillers and thickeners. So we learned about how different carbohydrates are used in the food industry as, and like starch and things like that. But then we got into the molecular gastronomy. They, um, we used uh, calcium alginate to make um, little, the students told me they're mm-hmm. called bubas mm-hmm. or bobas that they put on yogurt. Yep. So it's made with calcium, I'm sorry, with sodium alginate. And, um, and then what you do is you gel it, but you mix it with fruit juice and then you gel it and it gels from the outside. So you get these little like jelly beans with juice in the middle, went through all the chemistry with them. And so, um, they loved that. And then they had to come up with their own recipe for a new type of, um, jelly you know, um, yeah, we uh, we use the sodium alginate now. Um, we do it in a variety of different ways in the AP. We make, uh, you know, we make, there's an algae ball lab where people do photosynthesis. Yeah, and you take the you take the little uh, balls of sodium alginate and you mix them with algae and then you drop them into a, a, a fairly low concentration of calcium chloride, um, and it forms those little spheres. Yeah, yeah. We also do a similar lab with an enzyme. We do a yeast lab where we do a catalase lab. Um, using yeast mixed into those algae balls uh, with hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was thinking of doing those. I, I, there's a workshop on the um, doing with the algae. I was thinking of going to that, and I looked it up online. I found yeah. the yeast one. Yeah, so this is the same, exactly the same thing, except it's um, the alginate yeah. and fruit juice. And so you just use all food grade materials. Yeah, yeah, we did it in the kitchen. So the experiments are usually done in the science lab and in the cooking in the kitchen, and they obviously they would eat it. And um, that was that was that was one of their favorites was the the alginate. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> a I think the commercial product, and I always have a handful of kids who say that when when we're doing the um, when we're doing the yeast, they always talk about bubble tea. Um, so I, you can get those, you yeah. can get the little alginate balls there and you can also get them. They get a lot of them, get them at the frozen yogurt places. So if you go to a frozen yogurt place, you'll get, um, those little bubbles, uh, which are just sound like, just like what you're, you're making or your kids are making with the, the fruit juice inside. So, yeah, exactly yeah, really, it's a really nice, uh, I mean, it's a really clever way of doing electives. You know, I, I've always talked to people about, um, you know, electives that are outside the box type thinking and ones that are really engaging, but I, I can see you know, the way you're doing this, you could really engage pretty heavily in a lot of the science practices that are part of the NGSS um, with this and hit quite a bit of content um, through this course, uh, I, I can envision. Yeah, it was surprising. Um, we usually get, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, get a lot of students who re- really aren't interested in biology. So this is a way to get biology credit. And by the end of the semester, it's one semester course, end of the semester, they're just like matter-of-factly talking about KCN and uh, less of then. Yeah. I mean, I was immediately thinking as soon as you said KCN, you have the, um, the, the KCN Bioinformatics Lab. I immediately went into that <laughs> in my head. KCN? Yeah, you, you talked about uh, looking at milk proteins with bioinformatics at one point when we were talking. Is that the whales, the one on whales? Yeah, the one with the whales, yeah. yeah you, have the, you have that whale casein lab. I think we I think Brian and I stole that like one of the first years as one of our follow-up labs because uh, we, we do a whole thing on whale evolution. 
Yeah. Um, and we did whale casein. We now do it all the biology teachers use that one. The students love yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's another really cool one. But it's funny because you're, you know, you used to talk about these, such this integration where you were using it in a molecular gastronomy class. But I also know your background and I know your knowledge and I know this really cool activity you've made. So even if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to beef up, let's say you had one of those kids who needed to pass the state exam who's taking this molecular gastronomy, you wouldn't have to do a lot of tweaking to, to throw in a few of those, you know, evolutionary pieces in a couple of extra lessons and you could probably help them get over that that bar. Yeah. So an, another thing that that comes to mind, and I sort of referenced this earlier on when we first started talking, is like, you know, you're you are at professional development. As I said, I sat down this summer. You know, I went to two workshops, and the second workshop I went to this summer, I sat down, and you were sitting there, and I was not surprised. You are a regular face at you know the the Massachusetts Association of Biology teacher workshops, or um, you know the Wolbachia workshops, or wherever I go. You're you're you seem to be everywhere in terms of those workshops, um, you know, particularly if I go into Cambridge um, and I see your name regularly posted as a presenter, you know, at, um, at Whitehead Institute or Broad or, or places like that. Um, so I guess my question is, like, how do you find your professional development opportunities to pursue? Like, what is your process of, of, of developing sort of your approach to professional development? Boy, um, right now it's easy. But I'm trying to remember at the beginning, I knew people that went to professional development at a, um, at a, on a regular basis. And they would tell me, you know, there's a great workshop at MIT. People like you would tell me, um, <laughs> you know, about different things I could do. And so I went to them and then you get into the network. And now I just, um, you know, I get a lot of things by email from MIT or Harvard or whatever. And... Um, through just conversations with people there. Um, I know like at Harvard, we had a, had a workshop. I used to go every year to Harvard for the workshops and we had to come up with an activity at the end, um, you know, by the end of the workshop on the topic of, for that year. And I came up with a couple of bioinformatics activities and eventually they asked me to present them at the, you know, next year, could you present that at our workshop? And, that's how it got started. Yeah, I was actually just as you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, that. It's no, it no, we no longer run it, unfortunately. But we had that AP Biology Network meeting out in Worcester as well. Um, where that was another example of you know Brian invited me out when I started teaching AP. He's like, oh, we have this meeting and it's out in Worcester. You should come out to this thing and walk in and you're there. Um, and it also reminded me of a story I was telling uh, one of my my younger colleagues uh, this summer, and I was saying it's a pretty small world in professional development. You know, you, there's a handful of people you see over and over and over again. And it seems like there's a, a pretty, a pretty hardcore community, at least in the Eastern Massachusetts, um, that you, you see a lot of the same faces, uh, when you go to workshops and then they, they tell you about the other opportunities or they tell you about the cool things that you went, that they went to this year or that year. Um, which sort of puts them on your radar. So when you get those random emails, you're like, oh, yeah, I should apply for that. Yeah. So that sort of leads into the, the next question. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of at an interesting point. I keep bringing it up in conversations with people, um, you know, and I've talked to teachers and uh, you know, several Massachusetts teachers, but I also talk to teachers all over the country. And um, 
you know, it's sort of interesting. We're, we're at this transitional point in Massachusetts where we've just adopted brand new state standards. Uh, they're very aligned with uh, the next generation science standards, but we haven't really been impacted by them. There's all this new technology that's coming out everywhere. Um, and there's a lot of sort of different things that seem to be bubbling up on the table. And I, I'm curious sort of what what's on your radar. What are you looking forward to in the next couple of years as you, you know, look forward in your classroom? What sort of are you excited about integrating or, or trying out in the in the next couple of years? Last year, um, I tried to go animate, which is a, um, a program where the students, the students sign up, it's sort of like classroom, and um, they get access to a program where they make their own animations. I tried that out last year, and it worked pretty well, so I want to develop a routine for using that, where they create a storyboard and present this story in the form of an animation. It worked out very well. Another thing I'm thinking about is sometimes if we have a, kids don't understand something, I'll act it out or have them act it out. Um, we just did, the other day we were doing the lab with, you know, the setbacks, the, uh, which, oh, yeah. which is absorption chromatography. And I was explaining why the dyes adhere to the beads. And they didn't quite get it. So I, I just, just came up with this on the spot where I, I had them, all the students stand up and a couple of them were dyes. The rest of them were water molecules. And, and then they were going to move around at random. And if uh, a dye bumped into a water molecule, it would grab onto it, but very gently. <laughs> if a water molecule bumped into a water molecule, it would grab on fairly solidly. And it, if there was a dye there, the dye would, would be pushed away. And then by the end, after a couple of minutes, all the water molecules were in the middle in one big huddle. And the two students, <laughs> the dyes, were out next to the bench. So I said, imagine the bench is the bead, and that's how it did and wind up on the bead. So they liked it. So I want to do more like that, and I actually want to do it where the kids acted out, and maybe we'll um, put it on our website so that um, other students can look at it, you know, like as a resource. Yeah, I love the idea of students as creators, either as the creators of the animation or as creators of the the plays uh, that are in there. That's a that's a really good uh, really good idea. And so, are you doing those with like your you know pretty much all your classes? Are you trying those out or yeah? What kind of classes are you? Yeah, I, I did yeah. it for a long time with photosynthesis. We used to go um, up the stairs showing um, light from a flashlight, and it would. The electrons would get thrown to the top. It would be a student, NA, NADP would grab it and become NADPH. And that's the one I started with years ago. But now I'm starting to think of dealing with um, abstract concepts. Yeah. And they seem to like that. And I want to keep it short. Where, where, because as you know, in AP biology, you don't have a lot of time. So I want to keep it fairly short. And I, I, I like, in my classroom, I've been moving more and more towards student-centered where they teach each other and they have fun with the work, but the fun is part of learning. Yeah, that's, that's great. Sort of a guy. Yeah. I, 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 I keep, I mean, I, I was saying this the other day. I, um, last Friday, I, I'd had a couple of conversations and I, I was supposed to walk into my room and do a PowerPoint 
um, you know, PowerPoint slide. And it was a bunch of questions. It was going to be very Socratic, but it, it was so not student-centered. And I looked through the slide deck, and I I'd had a conversation with a colleague, and I had I'd seen some stuff online, and I said, you know what I could do? I could just take these, and instead of having my kids, um, you know, walk through these lessons where I am, it's all me directing it, I could give the kids these questions and have them all work them out and then just have them like go and read each other's answers and, and give each other comments on them and then do like a share out the last five minutes of class, cover the same content, but have the students be the ones who are generating all the content and not have it coming from me. Um, and it was so much better yep. and in so much more engaging of an activity and so much more engaging of a lesson um, than if it had been me standing in front of the room. It, it was the same content, but the, such a different focus. So, yeah, I, I applaud your, your efforts. Uh, when they, you know, do the sharing, uh, at that point I'll go up to the board if they have questions. So either I'll work at, out at the board or I'll on students that think that they understand. Yeah, and I... Board. Yeah, and I and I did check them. You know, I did do a check for understanding at the end and and provide the opportunity questions. But it was it was so much less. I was so much more a focus on yeah. on them and them critiquing each other and them working out the answers to themselves. Uh, it was it was you know that's that's yeah. where meaningful learning happens. So um, so I I applaud the direction and I I hope to do a lot of that myself. Um, I have to. I'll post uh, in my show notes. Um, you know, that, that link, um, so that other people can take a look at that animation software as well. Okay. And yeah, the first day of school now, I, uh, for the last few years, uh, I break up the students into pairs and they, and it's someone who's sitting next to them. So they're all in pairs and I've told them that your partner is the person, if you don't understand something and you're working on it, your partner is the one you discuss it with. And, um, yeah. And so then, and then every day they work with their partner or sometimes I'll put two groups together. Uh, so we have four people, but they're still the same partners and they, and therefore they try to work things out before they come to me and they get, as they get used to it, they get a lot more confident and they seem to um, be more willing to try things out. Mm -hmm. That's, that's important. What I've been doing, I started a few years ago is I sometimes try to teach a lesson by um, Xeroxing short papers on a topic and then having like each student read one paper and then they get together in groups so that everyone in the group they have all papers covered in that group and then they try to i have questions for them to try to answer by using what they read in the papers so the the one i one i did that worked out really well was um endothermy and homeothermy and i found a but and the question was were the dinosaurs warm-blooded and so I found a bunch of different articles addressing that. Read one article, and then they sifted through the articles together and came up with an argument explaining what do we mean by and, um, you know, what is the evidence that dinosaurs were or were not warm-blooded. And then we had a discussion about it. And they were much more interested at the end, were able to participate in the discussion when I sort of just drew everything together rather than taking notes at the beginning. That seems to work pretty well. That's great. That's great. All right. So uh, we've had a lot of your classroom stuff and a lot of the work. So uh, when you are not teaching, what what is David Form out in the world doing? What do you like to do when you're not working on your bioinformatics lessons and 
and teaching and not sleeping yeah um yeah <laughs> yeah well i used to i still do but um I, i'll sometimes come up with an idea and i'll try to work it out um when i'm at home that's how i did a lot of the bioinformatics lessons but yeah other than that um i play guitar and so i enjoy that's so i find that very relaxing um i like going to i'm very interested in music so i go well i go out a lot with my wife and the try to listen to music as much as possible. I like cooking and I also uh, enjoy playing Euro games. So, um, so what are Euro games? So that, um, they are, well, they start, started out in Germany and then spread to the rest of Europe and then spread here. There were games that it started in the early nineties and they were trying to a group of designers um, we're trying to develop games that were like Monopoly in a sense, where um, it's not cutthroat, it's not war games, um, but it had more substance to it. And some of them you could play as a family, some um, require a little more interest in the game, um, and there are every they, they, they keep um, evolving year by year. There's one I use in my classroom called Evolution that the kids love it. I do that after the AP test. And um, oh, I'll have to try and find a link for that and throw that in the show notes. Uh, the evolution one. Yeah, they basically, it's like a card game with a board and they design creatures um, and they try to get certain characteristics that would help their creature um, survive in the environment. They're all in this environment together. And as they do that, the environment changes. So then they have to keep evolving survive in the environment. Oh, you feel oh, okay. a little bit more, col- a little more collaborative than most, than a lot of board games. Yeah. And, uh, they like it a lot. And they, actually they learn a lot of ecology from it. Not so much evolution, but ecology. But the thing is, it's a real game. It's a fun game. So they don't realize while they're playing it, that they're actually learning ecology. So they think about it afterwards. That's neat. All right, so um, before we get to picks of the week or picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? What are your plans for, um, are you going to keep doing this in the future or are you going to move on to um, another level? In terms of podcasting? Podcasting and really you're really providing a resource uh, for the teaching community, making it more of a community. Yeah, and, and so, like, right now, my, my plan is to, to take sort of, you know, right now it's sort of one step at a time in terms of the podcast. Um, you know, I was talking to, um, I, I just put out a podcast uh, with, uh, with another teacher, uh, David Kanofsky, who's uh, down in Long Island, and he actually has his own podcast with, with, a, with a fellow teacher. And, you know, I was saying that when I started this, I, I started this podcast really for me. Um, that's how I, I started it. Um, but I do hope that I can build sort of a small community um, and really sort of a, a community who's talking about things positively um, and then collating some resources that I can I can go back to and then other people can go back to and say, oh, you know, what was that? You know, I need an article about such and such a topic or, you know, oh, what was that uh, digital tool that he was using for, you know, making quizzes in the classroom or for presenting and, and I'm pulling all those together and I'm putting them on, you know, life of the school.org, which is my podcast website. So my plan is to do this and, and do it as long as it, it's, you know, engaging and interesting for me. And, um, as long as I can keep building resources, I, 
I had said when I sat down to, you know, to think about doing this, you know, I was like, well, how many teachers do I know? Could I do it? And I came up with more than a year's worth of names of interviews. If I do, you know, two a month, um, I it, like just off the top of my head from all over the country, from, you know, people I've met at workshops or people I've, I've taught with in various, uh, capacities and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm going to call people up and, you know, I, it's, it's, I think going to get a little tougher to schedule these things as we get in the school year, but my hope is, you know, do it through the school year and sort of see where we go. And, um, I could, I could envision this podcast evolving into something being something a little bit different, um, down the road. But, uh, for now I'm, I'm just doing the thing that I'm doing and, and I'm, I'm having a really good time with it and I'm, I'm learning a lot. Um, I'm also, uh, as I said, I'm doing this for me. So I, I'm forced to reflect a lot about what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, when yeah. I come up with a question for other people, I think those questions out myself. And so, you know, I feel like a couple times a month I'm sitting down and thinking about, you know, what it is that I'm doing and why is it I'm doing the things I'm doing as I'm having these conversations with people and listening to, to their thoughts about the work that we're doing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, so have you thought about, uh, reaching out to people other than teachers, like, uh, well, scientists or, um, professionals related to, to science? Yeah, I think at some point, um, you know, right now I've, so far I've pretty much hit high school biology teachers. Um, but I do know a lot of people who work, um, in colleges and universities who are very interested in science teaching and engaging students. I, I know that for, I know a lot of people and I know several professors who, who I, I've spoken to, you know, friends of mine who are, who are very, have very vested interests. And similarly, I know a lot of, you know, um, people who are either in middle school classrooms who are working on, you know, uh, similar dilemmas or people who are not even in a structured uh, school setting, you know, uh, people who are doing some more informal education um, type things. Um, as I said, when I sat down, I, I sat down with a sort of life science teacher focus, uh, but I could certainly see bringing some other people in um, and having these conversations um, I'm a, so I'm, I'm barely at the tip of the iceberg now. This is only episode eight. So I still have a lot of, a lot of teachers I want to talk to first, but I, I, as I said, I, I could very easily yeah. see this evolving into, into something that's different. And I don't know what that will be. I, I think, you know, I'll yeah. sort of let, I'll let what happens happens and I'll let sort of what my curiosity drives me to. And, you know, if I get feedback and I've gotten a little bit of positive feedback, um, from people and so far it's been, a I like what you're doing, keep doing what you're doing, uh, type things. But as feedback comes in and as conversations, you know, continue, uh, I could see doing some, some different formats or, or bringing other people into the conversation. So that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. I think this will be just super useful. It's, uh, I, you know, I go to workshops a lot and it keeps me sort of alive in the field, you know, where I'm not getting stale and you get to talk to like-minded teachers, but the, the What's really useful is when, as, as you said earlier, we get into a conversation with someone and you find out they're facing the same issue you are and, and suddenly you see a new way to approach it. And I think that's what this will do. Well, thank you. Teachers, you know, I know like, I'm looking forward to seeing the other podcasts now. <laughs> it would be, probably be really useful to spur me on to thinking in different ways about going and how I'm teaching certain things. Yeah. I, so this is fantastic. Great. Right. So um, now I'm on to picks of the week. And uh, I 
you you've kept your pick pick secret from me. So I don't know if you've had a thought a, t- a chance to to think about it. David, do you, do you have a, a an interesting resource or story that's grabbed your attention recently? Yeah, um, I have an online subscription to uh, the Scientist magazine, and I often assign the students articles to um, read and discuss. So um, current things, and one thing that came up last year that was interesting, there was an article um, about these monkeys that um, get drunk. And then I found a video on YouTube of it. It's supposed to be, it's on there because it's funny, but it shows these monkeys um, in the Caribbean stealing drinks from people. But they actually get into talking about that these monkeys, they have the same percentage of like heavy drinkers that humans have and teetotalers and and most of them drink in moderation. And so I thought that was kind of interesting and it got me onto thinking about um, maybe doing something with the, the students on uh, genetic behavior and starting out with something like that, you know, which is, and then getting into specific genes that affect behavior. Yeah, yeah really interesting hook um, <laughs> about, about behavior and, you know, the, the idea of how much of your genes dictate your behavior versus free will. Um, this is a very interesting yeah. concept. Yeah. So. Yeah, and also the idea that there's a gene that influences behavior. Well, what does that gene, what does that protein do? You know, how does it influence behavior? What is the uh, biochemical basis for that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I'd be curious to see if it has to do with some of those, like, you know, alcohol degradation enzymes. And if you have more of them versus if you have less of them, you know, having more of them might mean you can process more alcohol, but then maybe you drink more alcohol. Um, whereas yeah. if, is if you don't have those enzymes, then maybe you have a much lower tolerance because alcohol gets to you much faster. So uh, it'd be, it's a, so a lot of curious conversations you can open up and also some ethical uh, decision-making that, that is probably very uh, relevant to the teenage life. And it also helps students understand why we uh, start with animal models. Yeah, yeah, good, excellent point. Yeah, like it seems ridiculous. Why do we study drunk monkeys? But then you realize the same pathway probably that's in us. Yeah, cool. So my pick, uh, my pick is um, I actually saw um, a, an Edutopia article um, this week, uh, which is called uh, "Brains in Pain Cannot Learn," um, and it's all about the idea that you know when a teenager's stressed they really can't uh, take in and process new information. They, they just can't learn. And the article explains sort of why this happens. And it al- also outlines ways to help um, students modulate stress and how to calm themselves during stress. Um, so I don't know how much this has come up in Neshoba, but um, student anxiety, student stress, uh, pressure to succeed, um, you know, is, is something that's very much on the forefront that we talk about at Act- in Acton Boxborough a lot. Um, and it's, it seems to be something that, particularly in the last five years, I feel like we're having a, a, an evolving conversation about, you know, what is, what is it we're trying to do? How, what does healthy learning look like? You know, what, what does it take yeah. to build a lifelong learner? And what are the, the structures in place that sort of fight against that? And, you know, a lot of the pressure to get into college and the pressure to succeed and, and students' abilities to, to deal with those stresses and the complicated lives that they leave outside of school um, or lead outside of school all play a role in the 
in that. Um, so I, for me, this felt this resonated quite a bit with uh, conversations that we've been having as a whole school, and uh, I thought it might be something that uh, other people might find useful as well. Yeah, definitely. So, well, David, thank you very much for uh, for sitting down and thank talking you. with me. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I, I will now do my uh, my closing credits. Uh, so uh, you can get um, Life of the School uh, information. All of the stuff that we've talked about uh, will be posted as show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. All one word, Life of the School. Uh, feedback can also be provided at lifeoftheschool.org. There's a little feedback form that you can type in uh, feedback and send it off to me uh, there or leave comments there uh, right on the episodes. You can also reach me on Twitter at Life of the School or at Mr. Matthew Tweets. Um, both those links are also on the website. Music is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins, former student of mine. And um, this episode will come out, um, and we put two episodes out every month. Um, so uh, really, usually the first and third Monday of each month. So this is going to be our early October episode. So thank you for joining me, and uh, you can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or really any place the podcasts are found. So uh, thank you again for joining me, David, and I will talk to everybody soon. <laughs>